Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Uh, he was targeting sex workers and he would solicit services. He would then beat them near to death and then leave them. And we had had this probably maybe four to five times that we would find these women beaten nearly to death. I encounter people on generally the worst days of their lives. Nobody calls a crime scene investigator if their day's going well. Right. Right. And I don't encounter people that are happy to see me. Uh, if I'm lucky, the victims are living. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I am here with Alina Burrows, and she is the host of Crime Scenes Confidential, and she is an expert in forensics science. I've watched several of the episodes. Um, you know, I mean, I, I thought they were really interesting, a little, really kind of graphic too, you know, like you really kind of get into the whole thing. And, and I, w the one I thought was interesting, well, I mean, I guess it wasn't just the forensics, but it was the fact that it seemed like the police got onto one of, this is the guy that had like the furniture store. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, it seems like they decided he was, he was guilty and then they just stuck with that. Yeah. Uh, that's a common thing that we see in some investigations. And that's why I fell in love with crime scene investigation forensic evidence, because it doesn't have a bias. It doesn't have an interest in a particular person, um, especially when we look at some older cases before forensic science really had a chance to evolve. You know, what you see is police get there, they make up their mind about something and they kind of run with it because, like I said, depending on the time, there may or may not have been forensic science that could come about with blood test results that supported one way or another. And that's that's the scary thing when we look at cases that are a bit older. That's part of the reason why Crime Scene Confidential exists. We want to look at cases under the eye of 2023 and look at decisions that were made. You know, the stakes are pretty high here. We have people that are still in prison um, that are saying that they're innocent and if they were put in prison in a time in which we didn't have forensic capabilities that we have today, do they still need to be there? Right. I mean, look at how many people, you know, uh, DNA has has proven that this was not the person. That, right. You know, that they were 100 percent sure, like, the, you know, all the all the evidence pointed toward them. And then suddenly, 20 years later, DNA comes out and it's like, oh, wasn't him. Exactly. That's why science is there. You know, people always have an interest in maintaining a, a perception and uh, people lie. Right. We know that for a fact. But DNA doesn't. It, it's going to be the 100 percent truth of what happened. And that's what the show uh, does is, you know, we reexamine these cases that are highly controversial, that a lot of them are based on circumstantial evidence. And we look at them in 20, you know, 2023 eye, a current eye current forensics and say, was the forensics that was used at the time still something that we hold valid today? 
And, you know, are the people that are convicted, was this uh, a proper conviction? Has this been a wrongful conviction? Is there somebody that's been released? Is it a wrongful release? You know, what are we looking at with these cases? Right. Um, so, how, I mean, how did you get into this? Were like your police, I mean, were your, sorry, were your parents police officers? Were, were there law enforcement in your well, family? Not law enforcement in the way that most people look at traditional law enforcement, but uh, my father did train uh, a lot of law enforcement in uh, something that most people aren't familiar with, which is uh, police promotional processes, right? We don't want police to promote people based on, hey, I know that guy. We should promote right. him. We want to have good promotional procedures that are based on picking the right person for the job because they are the most knowledgeable, the most skilled, they have the best capabilities. And my dad is uh, actually an industrial organizational psychologist who designs testing procedures to make sure that the right people are promoted for the right reasons, uh, in effect, removing bias from that part of the process. So I did start working with my father when I was in undergraduate school. So while I was working in college, I worked for the family business, and that's where I became interested in crime scene. I started helping writing tests and looking at the crime scene procedures and I said, I think this is really what I want to do. So I started working um, on on my graduate degree at that point. So what I did and what I advise everybody else to do, because they always ask me how to be a CSI, is you call the local agency where you want to work. And that's what I did. I picked up the phone and I said, I want to be a CSI. What does it take for me to get a job at your agency? And they said, well, we have, you know, this requirement that you either need to have six years of experience or you need to have, uh, you know, as a CSI, and I had none at that point, or they said you need to have a six years degree. And at that point, I had a bachelor's degree. So six years meant I needed to have a master's degree to get my foot in the door. So I said, okay, uh, hung up the phone and I enrolled in to work on my master's degree and I did the master's program in three semesters. So I got my master's degree in about a nine-month period. Did, did it matter what your master's degree was in? Master of Science, yes. It okay. had to be a related, <laughs> related field. So I got my master of science in criminal justice, came back, and I said, got your six years right now, um, education, and can I take the test to be a crime scene investigator? And that's how the whole thing started. Okay. Well, I mean, where were, I mean, where were you born? I'm just letting you know, I know we're jumping backwards now, but uh, where were you born and raised? Born and raised in Central Florida. Okay. So, yeah, a lot of the cases that um, have really been highly publicized, a lot of the high profile cases that I worked, uh, like the Kaylee Anthony case or the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, are near and dear to me because those are that's my hometown. Right. Yeah, we've got some horrific crimes in Florida. Yes. Uh, I, I'm in Florida. I was uh, I was raised in Tampa. Well, I was raised in Temple Terrace, but nobody knows where Temple Terrace is, so I should say Tampa. Yeah, I actually uh, at one point trained Temple Terrace Police Department, so I know where Temple Terrace is. Yep. Um. Yeah, I. So, I mean, did you have like where your are your brother any brothers sisters anything like that any. Yep, I have a brother who's got a background in military, and uh, but I'm the law enforcement one in the family that uh, went into investigations, for sure. It, it's funny because I I interview 
I'll interview police officers or, you know, former mobsters or whatever. And in like it, up in New York, they're all, they always say the same thing. They're always like, you know, listen in the neighborhood, you know, it's, it's very much like, it sounds like, um, something out of, uh, like a crime movie, but they all seem to say the same thing. They're like, look, you were either going to be a criminal or you were going to be, you know, law enforcement or work for the government in some way. There was really only two paths. Um, so I just, I'm just always wonder when I talk to law enforcement, Yeah, how it always is. And then a lot of guys like their, their family members will, will have, you know, military law enforcement, that sort of thing, or at least sometimes just government, you know, they're in some form or another, they work for the government some, somehow. Yeah. So, well, you know, I've considered many other jobs before I found my way into a crime scene. So I started to be an attorney. I considered, you know, being an attorney. Take I took the LSAT and I'd considered law school at one point. And I, I still actually toy with the idea, especially going through years of my time in the criminal justice system. Um, I, I think it could be a step for me at some point, play around with the idea, but I'm not an attorney, but I do get to play that part, think that through. As an investigator, you have to think about all the steps, right? How is this going to play out in court? I don't know. Being a, I guess it depends on the kind of the the type of attorney you are. I know a lot of attorneys, and they always just seem it's just so frustrating, you know, because things sometimes you know you feel they just don't go their way, especially criminal defense attorneys. Like you know, you you meet the 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 guy you're representing, you know, the defendant, you think he's okay. You think, you know, we can negotiate this. And the next thing you know, you know, he's got 20 years and you're like, wow, that just, he didn't deserve that. Or, or maybe, or maybe he deserved better than that or worse than that. But yeah, there's not a lot of control in the criminal justice system. You know, whether or not you're a police officer or a crime scene investigator or an attorney, I think as you enter that funnel that, you know, we call the criminal justice system, and I don't think a lot of people have a lot of control over any of those steps. So frustration is a common uh, word that's used to describe that. You know, I don't have control over my cases. You know, people ask, like, you know, how do you feel about these things? You know, I encounter people on generally the worst days of their lives. Nobody calls a crime scene investigator if their day's going well. Right. Right. And I don't encounter people that are happy to see me. Uh, if I'm lucky, the victims are living. Right. So how did the, I mean, how did you end up, you know, getting on the show or I don't know, doing the show? Was it your idea or, or were you approached? It's a, a serendipity, right? Um, I've also in my career as a crime scene investigator, I've done a lot of teaching. So I, I taught college um, forensic science. So I'm kind of used to being in front of people and translating forensic science and breaking concepts down, you know, things that are can be relatively complex concepts like forensic genetic genealogy. And then, you know, breaking that down into a way there people want to hear about it. You know, people don't want to, you know, tune out. And I want to be able to keep the attention of a student that's in class. So I always taught that there are a couple of different ways and different levels that you can instruct things, right? You can canoe or you can scuba dive, right? I can go across the surface and, and explain things like that. If you start scuba diving, you're going to lose people really fast. Um, and so I think I learned how to explain topics 
in a way that makes it easy for people to understand and get interested and get on board and go, yeah, that makes sense, Ali, and I understand, and maybe I want to know a little bit more about those things. So I learned that skill, I think, as a as a teacher, as a professor. And so I'm in front of people. I'm explaining concepts. I did a lot of public speaking at that point, and I was out doing public speaking, and I, I had somebody approach me and ask if I'd ever considered you know, doing something like a television show. And my thought process at that point in time was, you know, as a crime scene investigator, I want to impact families, right? I want to make a difference in the world. I'm one of those silly people that thinks that I might be able to change the world. And I can make that difference at a very small level as an investigator. Or if I get to a larger number of people, maybe I can change the world at a bigger level. So I considered that. And I worked with the with a production company and we thought about what we might want out of a show. And then, you know, out of, you know, maybe 18 months of of talking about this, Crime Scene Confidential was born. It wasn't called that at first, but, you know, it, it evolved into that. And it's evolved more in season two, I think, than it was in season one, like anything. Um, I say that I have two children at season one and season two of Crime Scene Confidential. And it really is my heart and soul that's put into this. So I'm still able to get involved in cases. I'm still able to research. I go through two to 4,000 pages of documents on every one of these cases, personally researching everything. I'm still able to talk to family members and hopefully be able to provide them with something that gives them some closure. Kind of walk them through this journey Maybe there's some healing that can be done. Maybe through the show, I can put them together and have some conversations, some really powerful conversations take place on this show, not just between me and the people that I interview, but between other people, uh, key players in the show that have been in- introduced. Um, you know, in season two, we see a man convicted of murder introduced to the son of the woman he's found guilty of murdering. And conversations taking place between them because the son had things he needed to to say to this man. The man had things he needed to say to the son. And that's just part of a journey. There's an emotional aspect to the show. And then there's the science aspect of the show so that I get to be the CSI. I get to tell people the confidential aspect of Crime Scene Confidential is that you should get to this glimpse of this is what a CSI does when they get to the to a scene. Here's how my mind sees things. Here's how it works. This is how I process something. This is what I'm thinking. That doesn't make any sense. If this, then this. And if that person said this, doesn't that indicate that they knew this? Kind of walking through that process step by step. Um, so you said 18 months of with the uh, dealing with the production company. Like, did the production company go to, you know, A and E, or did they pitch the the project to to different uh, your different networks and then get a budget to do the show. Yeah, that's typically how it works. Is you know you work on a concept and then a production company goes out to a variety of networks and uh, then a network can pass on that or or pick it up and and investigation discovery. Thankfully, said yes, we would love to see that uh, tattooed pink haired lady come on and talk about crime scenes with. Did um, did you shoot a sizzle reel? No, no. Uh, well, I th- it was also during COVID, so COVID 
comes into play a bit with that as well as we we're, we're not really interacting as as much with people so i did some zoom interviews so if you want to call that a sizzle reel right kind so of how, how many episodes do you do you see um so the number of episodes also depends uh, each time. Usually on a first season, you get six episodes. So it's you know, kind of like a trial run to see how things go and see how well it's rated and if people like it. And uh, fantastically, it rated very well. People loved it. We actually got season one, got nominated for um, an American reality television award for best new series. So super thankful for that. And uh, then we got picked up for season two, which has eight episodes. Do you have anything to do with um, with what makes the show? Because, I mean, you know, obviously they end up with 30, 40 hours of video that some video mm-hmm. editor trims down. I mean, you must watch the episodes and just be like, you know, like, oh, that didn't make it or, oh, that was a good, you know, oh, they didn't really explain that very well. or But, oh, you know, yeah. limited. Yeah, um, I have an amazing working relationship with the showrunner, and uh, if if there's something that I've said, first of all, he is fantastic, and he is always just so great at picking, you know, the bits. Like I remember, you know, when you explained this so well, or I remember this particular scene that was so touching or so poignant. And those cuts kind of always already make it in without me having to, you know, say anything at all. He doesn't need my help. But if there was a moment where I was like, I really want this in there, then, you know, absolutely. We all kind of sit around and say, oh, but I would really like this in there. Uh, The hardest part, I think, for me, when I look at rough cuts of the show and then rough cuts get narrated to fine cuts, you know, narrowed down to fine cuts. And then, you know, what ends up becoming what people watch is... There's so much more content that we have filmed that I wish could make it in there. And it's just such a struggle for me because I'm like, oh, but what about this? And what about this? And I want to say, I mean, the show would be two hours long if if I had anything to do with it, because I'm so terrible at at eliminating things from the show because I just want everything in there. Well, I mean, it's like it's like, you know, obviously everybody's heard this, you know, it's like reading a book and then seeing the movie like it's it's just agony when you, you know, you know that. But the you know, the, the viewer doesn't realize what's missing, so they don't miss it. So they feel they're okay with what they see because they don't realize like, Oh, we didn't even talk about the third, you know, perpetrator or the next door neighbor that, you know, so much content. And, you know, really it has to be narrowed down just because it can get too complex and too hard to follow. Sometimes, you know, I looked at, uh, these cases and you're, I mean, there are nights I'm there, you know, most of the time at my computer in my pajamas, just, you know, going over these thousands of pages of things. And I have papers with handwritten drawings and diagrams and lists of weapons and arrows that go to these. I mean, it is like an insane person that where I have all these things. And I think, how are they going to make this easily translatable to a viewer when I have all of this spread out and I'm trying to think of, you know, all of the victims and all of the weapons and which bullet went to which. So yeah, there's, you know, there's this much, you know, there's this encyclopedia that we go through and then it, it kind of comes down to this nice thin version for television, but you're absolutely right. I just am like, Oh, I'm dying inside because I wanted all of these other extra beats. Right. To get in there. Thinking about the, you know, the, um, you know, all of the, all the documents that you have to go through, like, 
who acquires all that? Do you guys do like a Freedom of Information Act through, or does like the producer go and and gather all that? And and how receptive are the is law enforcement or you know the, whatever the whatever whether it's state or U.S. attorneys, you know, and at, whether it's federal or state law enforcement, like how receptive are they for you to go and say, hey, we want to go ahead and run through your case again because you know they're like, no, no. Our we're case good. perfect. Yeah, exactly. We don't need your help. Thank yeah. you. We're good. Yeah. Do they say, no, absolutely. Come on, take a look. Yeah. Well, the good news about uh, cases that are adjudicated already is that all, um, the information is available. We can look at all of this information that's out there. So we do have, uh, you know, researchers and line producers that thankfully they grab everything, right? Police reports and autopsy reports, lab reports, everything, right? So they gather it all. They put it in a Google Docs folder for me, and then I sit down with the biggest cup of coffee you've ever seen, and I just open it up and I start reading. And if these cases have gone to trial, trial transcripts, right? Um, that's when I break out my glasses because trial transcripts, depending on how many days a trial went on, can be thousands of pages, and you're just reading the prosecution and the witnesses and you're reading through everything. But the way that I look at it is I can't have a knowledgeable interview with somebody. I'm going to interview maybe a prosecutor, maybe a defense. I can't have a knowledgeable conversation with them. If I got a cliff note, you know, if I got cliff notes of the trial, I need to be able to show up on scene and say, in your closing arguments, you said this, you know, and have some sort of counter argument. So if they come back and they said, well, I did da 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 da, that I, can't, I don't just sit there and nod. Oh, okay. Good story. I need to be able to say, yeah, but you said this. And then right. they approach with it. Like I have to have back and forth. And I can't do that if I just got somebody that read it and gave me a summary. I have to read every page of those trial transcripts. And that's why it's so important for me to go through every bit of this case on my own. So I open a word, a blank word doc. I open all of these documents and I just start taking notes. This is what stood out to me. You know, this was great that they did this. Why did they do this? Maybe now this is available. This should be retested. You know, these are the questions I have. Did they ask this, this, and this? Or if I was there, I want to know this, this, and this. Because when we start the show and I am boots on the ground in that city, on that crime scene, getting a new perspective, I want to have questions that I can ask that prosecutor. I want to ask that investigator, how did they behave when you were sitting down in that room with them? I want to be on the crime scene, which we are for all of these episodes of Crime Scene Confidential, I go to the crime scene. There is a perspective I get from being at a crime scene that I can't recreate by sitting there at my home office in my pajamas with my coffee. It's great to read that report, but I get so much more information from physically getting there. You know, you watched our, our premiere episode. I am in the creek where the victim was found. It was I think the water temp was somewhere around 32, 33 degrees. It was about 25 degrees outside. I'm in waders. You can't wear shoes with those. So I've, I've got little socked feet inside those waders. I was having trouble forming words in that episode because my face was so cold. <laughs> There's a perspective you get from being out there that you cannot get from those documents. I don't know. I don't feel like, I don't feel like Chris Anderson would, He'd have stayed on the shore. He'd have been like, that, that, that suit nice and sharp. Yeah, he'd have been like, listen, I, I'm not going on down there. He sends somebody else. 
I'm going to send this to Chris. He'd have been there in that sharp suit. He'd been like, this suit's going to stay nice and crisp from this shoreline. He was, uh, yeah, he, he was a good interview. Yeah, yeah interview, Chris yeah. is fantastic. Very, very likable, very funny, very uh, jovial. Um, He's a great guy. So, uh, I had another question, but you were talking and then I forgot what it was. It was, it was, I was wondering like, or so, I mean, have you had any issues where they, I mean, I kind of asked, but you, you, you not really like, have you actually had any issues with, you said that the ones that have been like adjudicated, you haven't had any where they, you started the process of saying, Hey, here's a case where we want to do. And then it just went so bad. You guys were like, scratch that. We can't, they're not cooperating. No, I don't think so. And I think that if, if it were that, it probably, they wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't make it to me because they know how intense I get into these cases. They probably wouldn't release. If they give me a name, they know I'm going to start doing my research. So they probably won't even tell me a name until they know that this is, um, this is good and solid for us. The good news about season two that we didn't have with season one. So season one, we filmed the whole season. Uh, nobody knew about the show, right? We were a brand new show. Uh, nobody knew what this was. So by the time we film a second season, we have a whole season that people can watch. We have a reputation. They look at it and they understand who we are, what we do. So the access that we have in season two is unprecedented because people have seen it. And they are, I mean, uh, such an honor that people trust me to the extent that they do, that I sit down and we have some just deep, powerful conversations Um this season is just really up to the ante. Do you have any, are there any cases that stand out? Not not just in this season, but just, let's say, in your career. Do you have any cases that stood out that were really exceptional or challenging or? I think there are always cases that stand out to me for a variety of different reasons. And it's not always because they're the most gruesome or, or anything like that. I think there's cases that stand out to me because it was um, <clears throat> the the most interesting out of the box kind of solve, right? You know, crime scene isn't something that you can just say it's fingerprints and shoe tracks and DNA. Yeah, it's those things. But crime scene is such a it, it can come in any way, shape, or form, right? It's about making matches between victim, suspect, and crime scene, and that can come in any capacity. It, it's not just in that box. So any case that I've made a match on something that's just been like, how did that happen? Um, I had we had a, a serial rapist who was he was going around. He was targeting prostitutes in the Orlando area and he was soliciting services from them. Uh, I should say sex workers. I'm from an older school that has to learn to change my word choice. Uh, he was targeting sex workers and he would solicit services he would then beat them near to death and then leave them. And we had had this probably maybe four to five times that we would find these women beaten nearly to death. And they would give a description and they would say, it's just all I can say is that it's a, you know, a white male. And I think he was driving a pickup truck. And this is all the description we have. So, of course, Everything is a cooperative joint effort. Law enforcement is out looking for a description of this vehicle. They find a pickup truck and they think it could be related. They're not quite sure yet. 
they go out, they they tow a vehicle somewhere. I simultaneously get called to a, a scene where one of these women had reported being drugged into the woods and beaten. And I just happened to notice that there was in this area a tree branch that had been kind of broken off. And I thought, well, that kind of looks like maybe if a truck had driven into there, maybe the truck had something on it that could have pulled a tree branch off. So I cut the tree branch and collected it. And when they found the truck, there was still a piece of tree branch sticking out of like a work ladder that was on the top of his truck. He had driven through there and it had broken off a piece of that. And so th- a tree branch connected this truck right. to that crime scene where that woman was raped and brutally beaten. And so a piece of a tree connected this guy. Was it and- the the moment you the moment the detectives talk to him and he says, "No, I was no, I wasn't in the woods. No, of course not." And you know, and then they're like, "Oh, okay, that's it. He just sure. he just doomed himself. Now he's locked himself into a into a narrative that that the forensics don't support at all." Right. And I'm downstairs, unbeknownst, right, photographing this tree branch from the crime scene and this tree branch that I've taken out of the ladder on the top of your truck. And there's a piece. Because it was like a, it wasn't a dead tree, it was a, a living tree. So it peeled kind of back this piece that is still curled back onto the piece from his car. And I placed it back right down into the branch from the crime scene. It's hard to explain. It's real hard to explain. And so those are the moments when I'm just like, this is why I love my job. I live for those moments. I live for those moments because, you know, especially victims like that a sex worker might think maybe they're not going to listen to me because of who i am or because of what i've said and so forensic science is now giving that voice to a victim and legitimizing her story and saying yes she's a victim this is what happened she everything that she is saying is true and now we have a person identified that can now be shown in a lineup to these five other victims um, do you know what the resolution to that case was? Yeah, um, I don't remember exactly what he was sentenced to, but he was he was found guilty of multiple of those crimes, and obviously they stopped after that. Um, do you have it? Was this one that was uh that was a uh, an episode on the show, or this is was- no? So what's, yeah, no, what's- we we focus on deaths on our show for for now. Right. So what's which episode stands out to you in either season one or two? Because I don't know if you want to say in season two yet or maybe you do. I don't know. I think instead of episodes, it's moments that stand out to me, Um, you know, sitting down with obviously uh, our premiere episode has me sitting down with uh, a man that was convicted of killing a female. Those are very poignant moments, very powerful conversations. I have moments where I sit down with family members and ask them how they feel about maybe a parent that has been charged with a crime. And to hear a child say something about their parent. No shocked me 
you know, you can make your own opinions as an outsider. You know, we can all make opinions as to, you know, the guilt or the innocence of somebody or how we feel about that. But when you ask a child how they feel about the guilt or innocence of a parent, you usually have an expectation. Right. And I'll just say that, you know, the answers that that the children give me uh, were were shocking. So there are moments that that stick out in my head about particular interviews for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, are, is there, have you wrapped up season two, like all of them? Yes. Uh, all of season two has been filmed. So season two starts, uh, premiere episode airs September 6th at nine, uh, eight central on ID also streaming on max. And then it will air every week. So all of September, pretty much all of October, everybody gets to see crime scene confidential. So I've been working filming for some time to get these eight episodes done so that everybody can watch them. Do you have anything else you're working on? Um, yes. And I will let you know when I can tell you more. Okay. Um, yeah. So like this may have blossomed into something else into another uh, type of, well, that's always the goal. You know, this is, I want to engage. This has always been crime scene is is my passion. And I love talking to people. I love engaging with people. Uh, and so I hope that I'm blessed with a long career of being able to do this. Um, okay. Now, as far as more seasons of the show, you know, we don't know. We can't we live season by season. That's the stress of being a television host, right? Um, so if people like season one and want a season two, they have to just watch right that's all i can say is watch so if you want season three watch season two we live in a ratings world i, I you know i i interviewed uh, two women that uh they were they live in, in la and they had started how did it start it was it was a true crime series that had started as a series and i don't think they ever actually did anything like you know they you know, there was a plan, you know, it just, it just got to that, that stage where it just wasn't greenlit, but everybody kind of involved liked it. And they basically said that, but the budget was, it's like, okay, listen, you know, like it wasn't worth risking the budget for the crime scene show. And mm -hmm. so what they switched it to was a podcast. Yeah. And now they do a podcast. Oh, it was called, um, I, I know I'm not, I'm not, I, I can't remember. It was, but it was, it was something like I met my murderer online and it was about online dating. Oof. And, uh, so it was online dating and how some, you know, somebody had met some, some guy on, you know, on a dating website and they dated for three months or six months. And then he had ended up killing her. In one case, a guy had met a woman online and he was leaving his wife for her and the wife killed the woman and then killed herself just to make sure that the, the, the her husband that was yeah thing, you know, just to make sure that he was as miserable as possible. Like, you know, to me, he's the one who's got to go, but that wasn't the way the wife felt. Well, there's a, a lot of twisted realities to people, you know, that it, it appears like people don't understand the concept of divorce, you know, that 
Like you don't have to murder people. You can just leave them. Right. That is an option. On this case, she had she she was playing by a a different set of rules. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it had it had actually turned into um, to a podcast. So, you know, there it's like there's always it's funny because usually it's like a podcast that turns into a show. Right. That's the typical stepping stone. Uh, television shows are hard, right? They're hard to get. And there are so many steps at which, that you know, it can go kind of end. <laughs> right. You know, and I happened to get into that process in the middle of COVID, which made it even worse because as soon as, you know, COVID and the lockdown, everything hit, everybody went, oh, wait a minute. You know, we're going to. Yeah, right. The brakes were put on. Everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I mean, so do you, it, do you uh, can you think of anything we haven't covered? Because listen, I'm a talker. We can go on forever. I can I can talk about anything forever, but this is about you. <laughs> trying to think if I have covered everything or not. I mean, I've covered. Do you do a lot of interviews? You know, I. It's usually in spurts, so I have a lot of interviews. <laughs> right now because we're coming up to premiere so i get real popular around the show premiere and then uh you know i'll also get probably real popular right after the show premieres and then people start watching it and then when people go oh oh now we found the show we see you know what's going on with this then uh yeah i get you know these little random uptakes i also you know do some news coverage for you know any cases that do pop up in the news media you know people are very curious as to why the things that happen in our world happen and you know i think that could be said for true crime in general you know one of the more common questions that i get is why are people and and women in particular so interested in true crime um i think that question mostly comes from men that are frightened as to why women are so interested in true crime and if they're trying to pick up tips and if they should be frightened by this uh, and generally what I say is that they should not be frightened by this. This is the outlet, right? And also something that I think men typically don't think about or take for granted maybe is that you probably don't think about where you park your car and if it's under a light and how you're going to get from that car to a building or from that building back or if you're going to go out late at night, you know, if you're in a parking garage and, you know, there are if you're getting into an elevator, are you frightened by who's on the elevator with you? If you, I mean, I wanna, I'm a coward, so that's I, I understand. Do you think about these things? I think about these things. Most men don't typically think about their safety as much as women have to. It's become a part of what how we think. If we're going jogging, are we safe to go jogging? Where are we going to go jogging? Is it well lit? If we're going to meet friends out, uh, what time is that function going to end? And can we safely get back to our cars, to our homes? You know, all of these things have become such a part of how women have to think. And men kind of have a luxury of not necessarily having to think like that. And true crime does a lot of things. It, one, provides some training. You know, women watch this like, you know, where did it go wrong? You know, I'm making mental notes, right? You know, you don't do that. You do do that, right? Oh, well, you know, she went jogging alone at night, right? Clearly, that's the mistake. We don't do that. So it's almost like providing training. They also, you know, people in general, not just women, but they we love to solve problems. We want to think about as an investigator, what would I have done? Where would I have looked or how would I have solved this case? Would I have come to the same conclusion? 
And one of the things that I do love about Crime Scene Confidential is uh, we we love our viewers and we are not going to tell them how to think. I'm not there to say this is how you should feel about this case. I'm going to tell you this is what the evidence is. This is how it fits into the case. This is what the prosecution says and this is how the defense plays it. Here's the key people in this case and what they did. Here, maybe we're even going to talk to the murderer themselves. But Alina's not here to tell you how this, how you should feel about this or what you should think about this. I'm here to present the facts and let you decide what whether or not this person should be found guilty or innocent. And what I love is hearing people say, gosh, I sat down and I had a conversation with my husband or my coworkers the next day and we think guilty. Well, we think innocent. And well, but the evidence, this. Well, but yeah, but that. And that it's spawning these thought-provoking conversations about evidence, about bias. Well, yeah, but the investigation was biased from the start. Yeah, but the evidence, right? We're letting our viewers, it's a choose-your-own-adventure. I'm here to present the evidence and the facts and let the viewer decide, if you were the jury, what would you find? Right. I, um, like I said, I watch a lot of, so everything, so there's like, I have like two or three things that I thought of when you were talking. So one is I told you, I watch a lot of the, of true crime and like cold case files and stuff. And I'd say at least once or twice a month, I'll be somewhere with my wife and she, she has a, uh, her daughter is, um, Mary Shelley, like we were at the beach a couple months ago and we're, we're laying on the beach and Mary Shelley says, mom, can I have the keys and, you know, to the car? I want to go get my whatever out of the car. And she was sure she gives her the keys. And as she's walking off, I, I looked at my wife and I'm saying, I'm telling you right now, this feels like the beginning of a cold case file, you know, and that was the last time we saw her. Exactly. And then the, the image switches to a negative and <laughs> you walk, just don't say that. I said, I'm just saying. I would think about going going with her because I said, this is definitely the scene. There were so many people, but nobody saw her again, never made it to the car. The keys were found two days later in the bush. I said, she's like, oh, come on. I mean, but how, I'm I, I think about that all the time. I'm like, something will happen. And I'll be like, I don't know. I feel like I should call and tell someone that I changed, that I'm not headed here. I'm now going to the mall. I'm like, yeah, you know, let me text somebody that. I heard he was headed to get his haircut and they never saw him again. <laughs> they found the body, you know, in the woods two months later. By I'm snake. telling you, it's a thing, true crime training. The other thing is, and I've heard that whole, um, the whole thing about, you know, women, uh, you know, why do they like true crime? And, and this is the thing women tend to, and I, I think it's like 75% to 80% of true crime is consumed by, uh, by women, but it's, it's actually, and which maybe this probably is even worse. It's really the more violent true crime stuff that they, they crave because my, my channel, which the bulk of my channel doesn't focus on any type of violence, right? Mm -hmm. Not that there's not some stuff that does that, that I, where I get, um, I have a discussion about some kind of a violent content but very seldom, right? I'd say less than 5%, maybe less, less, at least less than 10. Most of it is credit card fraudsters, yeah. uh, scammers, yeah. you know, things like that. And so 
82 to 83% of my viewers are men. Mm-hmm. And only, and really only in the last year or so have I gotten more uh, female uh, subscribers, mm-hmm. which is weird, right? Like it's, I think that's weird that so many men are, they're just, you know, that they, 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 I, I guess they shy away from the more violent. You would think men would be more interested in violence, but it's just. They have an out. I mean, typically, very stereotypically, men have the outlet of sports for, you know, that side of things. And I, I also describe true crime as like the adrenaline rush. It's a mental version of a roller coaster, right? You know, why do people go on roller coasters? Because they know it's safe, but you get to experience this thrill that your body goes right. through in a safe environment. And true crime is kind of that on the emotional side. You get to be safe at home, right? You're snuggled up. You're totally safe. And you get to have that, oh, oh my gosh, these adrenaline, you know, rush feelings from a completely safe, controlled environment. And you get that feeling of, I'm safe. You know, that's, it's terrible for them, but you also feel better about your life because you're like, oh, thank gosh that I'm in this safe place and I don't have to go through that. But you also get that adrenaline rush at the same time. You're solving problems. You're learning life lessons. You're getting training. Why not watch true crime? Right. I looked that I had a, you know, guys will come here and, and, uh, cause I, a lot of my, probably once or twice, well, at least once a week, uh, I have someone come and we do an in-person podcast, right? They'll come for two or three hours and, and leave. And I had a guy come one time we did the podcast and he left. And my roommate, when he walked out the door and the guy was, listen, he, he was off. He was, there was something not right. He, he felt there was a disturbing presence about him. Hmm. And my roommate, when he left, he said, I'm telling you right now, that guy's going to come back and kill everyone in the house. He was, I'm telling you. And I said, yeah, I said, I listen, I know I understand. He said, tell her right now. He said, I feel very uncomfortable. I, 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 I don't like this guy knowing where we live. I was like, <laughs> Wow. But yeah, I, there's a thing to that though. You know, there's a, there's a vibe to people. There is right. Like, like I had heard that there was a study done where they had people that had, um, like, I don't know if they'd robbed, they'd robbed, like they were robbers, right? Like, I don't know if they're purse snatchers or what they were, but they were basically robbers and they had studied people and with, within like 80% they could look at someone walking down the street and tell if that was someone that sure. would rob or not. And, and and like almost everybody they picked were people that had been robbed and people that have been robbed are more likely to be robbed multiple yep. times. Body language, micro expressions. Uh, I mean, I do some of that when I talk to people as well. There's like mirroring language and there's a ton to that. Sure. Um, so what was that? What was it? the other thing I was going to mention to you was, yeah, that's, I don't know. I guess it doesn't matter. It's, 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 uh, it's bizarre. Uh, but yeah, true crime is, is super, I don't know why it's fascinating to me. And, and I, and I, and I actually do watch the, even the violent ones. Like, I don't really like them that they're the violent ones, but I do love, I guess because I've, I've written several books and I've done a lot of research. Like I'm very curious to know how, how these guys piece, you know, how the, the, well, I guess not just the, the forensic uh, scientists, but the but the detectives and, you know, how they piece it together, especially when you've got people that are blatantly lying to you. And, you know, how do you see through that? And uh, anyway, yeah, so interesting. I find it interesting. 
I really hope that you enjoy the rest of the season. I know that you will, especially after after we talk today. So you get all of September, yeah, all of you October. Have watched my life. Yeah. You know, like I was going to watch them that like after I watched those two, then um, my wife and I was I was going to watch the another one, at least another one. I couldn't get it to work. No. Yeah, well, we're, we'll resend the link so you can watch the, the get that third one watched. Okay. It also, it also could have been user error, by the way. So, you know, like just on my, I'm not super tech savvy, but I was amazed that I got it to work to begin with. So, okay, well, good. I, I, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to, to speak with me and I mean, I, I hope it does well. And if you figure out, you know, what the, the next gig is that you feel comfortable with and you want to do a, a podcast on it, let, let me know. I'm well, available. Thank you so much. Thanks for uh, giving me uh, the time to talk about something that I'm super proud of and I cannot wait to share with the world. So September 6th is coming up so soon. It feels like the biggest secret that I've been keeping for the longest time, right, since filming. So I'm excited for this moment to actually come out and unleash season two, Crime Scene Confidential, with the world. Oh, I would know if I was going to ask you. Yeah. Do you get recognized? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, like, has that, like, what, like the first time somebody came up to you, was it just like, were you shocked or? No, I mean, I, you have to consider I have pink hair, so it's not I like I can really hide. Not already. So it's easy for them to recognize you. Yeah. I'm a little more easily recognizable. So there's that. And you know, it, it comes in waves. So when the show is running, actively running, I get recognized a lot more. Um, when it's not running, then, you know, it's a little less. I really enjoy talking to people. So I never mind. Everybody is usually really polite and they just, you know, come up and say hi. And, you know, um, the only time that it freaked me out a little is I was sh out shopping, like Christmas shopping. And I was walking to my car in the parking lot and they waited for me to get inside my car and then came up to the window of my car and knocked on it. And so I was like, I just, you know, would recommend maybe not knocking on. Like I, you know, could have thought it was a carjacking. So maybe don't approach in the carjacking kind of manner to somebody that is retired from the law enforcement profession. Just, you know, yell or wave or, or introduce yourself. I would be happy to say hi, but um, don't pretend to carjack me. Thanks. PSA. All right. Well, that's kind of cool, right? You got to admit, that's pretty cool to be recognized. Yeah. I, well, I, I love it. And I love just that people get excited um, about the show in general. So it's an honor. Hey, I appreciate you guys watching. And if you like the video, do me a favor and share it to your friends and family. Also, uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell to get notified of videos like this. Leave me a comment in the comment section. Also, we're going to leave uh, any links on the show uh, in the description box. And uh, we'll also leave any uh, social media for uh, Miss Burroughs in the, in the description box. Also, really appreciate you guys watching. See ya. I am going to be interviewing former homicide detective Chris Anderson. And we're going to talk about some cases and his book and some... Uh, what he's been doing and so check out the podcast i appreciate you coming on hey no problem man i appreciate you for having me so uh you were you were on um discovery channels um what was the name of the show 
The name of the show was Reasonable Doubt. Reasonable Doubt. And that was for five seasons? Yeah, man. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Discovery. Yeah. The, going on to Reasonable Doubt was a, you know, it was a huge change in my career. You know, I'm used to, you know, investigating homicide cases and working cold cases and things of that nature. But uh, getting the opportunity to go from, uh, you know, as a homicide investigator and then being featured on First 48 and then going into my old show, Reasonable Doubt, uh, and running it for five years, man, that, that was, you know, that was a huge change. It was life changing for me, actually, to see some of the cases that I've worked, in, see some of the cases that others have worked in, and, and being able to sit down and, and, and really get some people some help. That, that, that was a grip. One of the best things I've done in my career. So I, I'm wondering when you go in and and speak with, so you go to reinvestigate a case, mm-hmm. and you go in and do the homicide detectives that had worked the case. Like, are they are they okay with that? Are they irritated? Like, they feel like, hey, this guy's, you know, looking over my shoulder or double checking my work, or or are they they open to it? Like, man, we want the help. So yeah, some some of the cases uh, I've looked into, they they run the gamut of everything they just said. I've run into some cases where some guys have, uh, you know, been very open to having a, having somebody look at a, at another case. I've had, I had some guys that have want you know felt like I was looking over their shoulders and they had to critique their work and things of that nature. Uh, and I've had some that just flat out said, "No, you know, you you're not gonna tell me, you know." my work is wrong and the, you know that's kind of like the uh the mindset of a of a of a homicide investigator you, you don't want people you know critiquing your work you know and you always want to maintain one of the worst things that could happen to uh a a, a, a police officer and, and and even a homicide investigator especially is to have someone come in and say that someone you were responsible for convicting your investigation was responsible of convicting the worst thing to say was that guy was wrongfully convicted. So I can understand some of these guys and I want me to come in and question. But on the other hand, I look at it like this. Uh, there have been lots of cases where people have been wrongfully convicted. And as a matter of fact, there are innocent people that are sitting in prison. Now, whenever an investigation has been done and a trial has been conducted and you have more questions that still remain than answers, then you should be willing to open up the books and let's re- reinvestigate, let's relook into what happened in this case and see if maybe we got this one wrong. Yeah. I, so I've, you know, I've spoken with a lot of, of uh, law enforcement and I always, it's funny. Like with my opinion of homicide detectives are that like they, they're very, they tend to be very focused on, on, not convicting, but, but solving that crime. Like, cause you know, there's no, there's no worse crime than murder, obviously. And it's, it's funny. You tend to get, you know, those are the guys that raise up through the ranks. You know what I mean? Like they have a goal. That's what they want to do. They want to, they want to get to become a homicide detective. So usually like the best, the best guys. And a lot of times that I've, I've just noticed that they're super driven and, and they don't care about anything else. It's like, look, like all these other crimes are, you know, almost a joke in comparison to murder. It's like, oh, you're the guy had a gun. OK, great. The guy was smoking pot. OK, great. The guy had. Look, I don't care about any of that. I'll take any help. You know, I want, you know, 
I want to solve this crime and I could care less about anything that I have to do to get to that point or who I have to deal with and talk to because those other crimes don't mean anything. Right. So, which I like about that. What I don't like is what you're saying, like that, like that would upset me. It's like, okay, I get you feel like the guy committed the crime, right. but do you really know it? Right. And yeah, so you, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, homicide investigators are extremely driven individuals. You have to be driven. You have to be extremely focused because when you're not focused and when you're not driven, when you get tired, you're going to go home. You know, if you're not driven, when, when you, if you're not focused, when you're looking at those cases and, and walking through the crime scenes and, and having to, 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 to process the, the millions of bits of information that are coming to you uh, w- without warning, if you're not focused, you'll miss something that's extremely important. So, yeah, uh, most homicide investigators that I've known, that, that I've met in my career, they were, they were extremely focused. They were extremely driven. They was, these were the guys that were the cream of the crop. Uh, uh, in their police departments, and they 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 ascended to the heights of a of a homicide investigator. Uh, and it takes a lot. It, I mean, in my department, it took a lot for uh, a guy to, to to get into that unit. They didn't just 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 end up in that unit by happenstance. You know, they, they, right. there were supervisors that were looking for a particular skill set uh, for the individuals that they brought into that unit. So. When did you, where were you, where were you raised? So I was raised in my city that I worked in Birmingham, Alabama. I grew up in Birmingham. I grew up in one of the roughest parts of Birmingham. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're a fan of, uh, of the show First 48, which I was, I was one of the investigators that was featured on First 48 also. Uh, and a lot of the, the, a lot of the cases that we film uh, on First 48 were cases that happened in my neighborhood where I grew up. So, uh, yeah, I, I came up through, through Birmingham. I'm a second-generation police officer. My mom was a cop here in Birmingham. Uh, and she was brought into the department during a time where, you know, there weren't a lot of females in police work and not a lot of black females in police work. So she's always been a trailblazer and a hero to me. So uh, when she went into police work, I was probably about four or five years old. And... Uh, you know, when I got of age, I think I was 21 when I when I started with the department. You know, I, I didn't want to work anywhere else but the Marianne Police Department because that's where I grew up. That's where I wanted to make, you know, the most uh, impact. Was your father around? What? Yeah, yeah. So my father was uh, was around. Uh, my father was the victim of a of an assault, a serious assault, uh, when I was uh, wow, it's probably a year or two after my mom became a police officer. Uh, and uh, he was seriously injured and uh, handicapped for the rest of his life. He's still alive today, but he was handicapped uh, uh, during that time, and he never could really hold down a job or anything like that. So my mom, while she raised three boys, she also had to take care of her husband. You know, she was the breadwinner of all the family after my father was almost murdered. So, uh, I mean, what are are your, uh, you have what, two brothers? I have two brothers. I have an older brother. I'm the middle child of us three. Uh, I was probably anyone that, that 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 knows me and my family. I was the one that was least likely to uh, uh, anyone could ever, you know, see me being a law enforcement officer. I was that 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 one that didn't make the great grades. I was the one that always stayed in trouble. 
you know, if there was any one of my mother's children that probably should have, that, that may have ended up in prison, it would have been me. So, so you know, but, uh, you know, God had a different calling for me, had a different path. And, uh, you know, I, I ended up uh, going into police work at a young age. My brothers are all both very successful. And, uh, you know, now we uh, look after our parents. Are, they're not in, in law enforcement? No, no, I was the only one that uh, of my mother's children that went to into law enforcement. Um, how long were you on the force before you became a homicide detective? What what made you and what made you want to become one in general? Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so going into law enforcement and and having a mother like mine, uh, who was very well known, very well respected uh, within the department, I wanted to carve my own way. Uh, and, and, and not walk, you know, I, I'm going to have to walk in her footsteps, but I wanted to carve my own way. And one thing that she never wanted to be was an investigator. You know, she always loved school resources. She always loved being, a, you know, a supervisor and things of that nature. So and she was great at everything she did. Uh, so me, I, I wanted a different path. So, you know, I went into law enforcement, uh, at 21 and I did, about five years in patrol and my my time in patrol was probably some of the greatest times that I've had in police work. But, uh, after about five years in patrol, uh, I think the year I, I hired on in 1995, that was four years. I hired on in 1995 in 1999. I was promoted to, uh, uh, which I did a little stint in, in narcotics. Narcotics really wasn't for me. Uh, but, uh, I ended up getting promoted into our burglary unit. And from there in 1990, 1999, I want to say it was, uh, and, and from 1999 all the way up to, wow, uh, 2000 and 2011 or 12, I, I was in investigations. I, you know, I moved around to several different units, but I went to homicide in 2005 and stayed there until I was promoted to sergeant in 2011. I spent the most time at homicide. Did you, were you gunning for homicide? Like was that was like, or James? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I, absolutely. Homicide, it, w w the way that we run out, we run out the department different than a lot of police, some police departments, I won't say a lot, but some of the police departments, you know, we have investigators that we have burglary investigators, then we have robbery investigators, and then we have homicide. And it, you know, we have it, investigators that specialize in certain types of crime. So, whereas most, you know, police departments don't work like that. If you work burglaries, if you're, you're a detective, you work all of them, burglaries, robberies, and homicide. We didn't work like that. So I knew pretty early in my career uh, that homicide was where I wanted to be. It was the tip of the spear. Uh, as far as investigators, they were always the sharpest. They were always the most cutting. They were always the, they were the, you know, the guys that I came up under, they were the guys that you wanted to be uh, 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 in police work. So I always knew I wanted to go to homicide, but I was young and I, I went into investigations that, I mean, I was probably in my early twenties and I think I got promoted to homicide right at about 20, you know, 28, 29 years old. I want to say, can't remember exactly, but yeah, it was, I was pretty young in, in police work and, you know, seeing all of that, and a young husband, a young father, you know, I got kids, you know, I got babies now, you know, and 
And, and, and it, as a homicide investigator, you spend a lot of time at work, a lot of time at work, missing out on football games and having to leave out of your daughter's ballet practice or their, their recitals, you know, because you're getting that call. But I was driven, man, and I, I, I wanted, to, this is something that I wanted to do. So for from the time that I was at homicide, uh, and, and it happened a lot when I was in, in, in robbery and burglary too, but when I was in homicide, my wife was almost a single white. You know, she had to raise our kids. She had to go and do all of it, handle the house and everything. You know, so, I, uh, so yeah, but it, 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 but it was a great time in my career. I, I wouldn't, I, there are certain parts of it I wish I could do over again, but I wouldn't trade it for, for the world. That experience is, it was amazing for me. Do you have, are there any cases that stand out that, Jared, I, I got plenty of them, man. I got plenty of cases that that, that uh, stand out to me. I've I've worked, I've worked almost not, nothing that you could show me uh, in a crime scene would surprise me. So I've I've worked everything from child murders, children being you know slain, and 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 then all the way up to you know elderly people being being uh, you know murdered and thrown out on the side of a road. So uh, I've got plenty of cases that, that really uh, touched that affected me in, in different ways. Uh, and that's one thing that I love about homicide. No two days are the same. Never. It, it's never the same. And that's that's what some of the things that where a lot of investigators get burned out because, you know, it's just the monotony of everything that's happening. But you can never say that when you're a homicide investigator. You know, no two days are the same. So uh, I had a case that I actually wrote about in my book called The Case. Uh, and 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 I talk a little bit about how I, you know, moved through our police department. I talked about how the impact that my mother had on me as, a, as an investigator, as a young, you know, police officer. And I talk about this one particular case that uh, I investigated uh, here in Birmingham. Uh, and it's a true story. I mean, you know, some I changed a lot of the names and things of that nature in the case. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a, a real case that actually happened here in Birmingham. It, it, it was the, the, the investigation, uh, what happened during the investigation, the, the, the drive. And, you know, it almost, working that case almost cost me you know, while I got it solved, got the people arrested, got justice for my victim, I almost lost everything that was important to me. That's my wife, my kids, my family. Uh, you know, but it, it was just, it was one of those things that that just happened, man. And it, and it helped me after working that, that, that particular case, it helped me become a better father, a better husband, and a better detective also. What was the case? What, what helped? Okay, so I, I'll tell you about it, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I, during that time, my wife and I were on a, you know, we were on a rough patch. I was kind of new at homicide. I had been in homicide for maybe a year or so. And, you know, I'm still trying to make my way. I'm trying to, you know, learn, get, gather all this information and, and, and learn how to do this job as well as I could. And I had gotten a pr- pretty good go at it. Uh, and, uh, but during that time, I, you know, I kind of left my wife and all my kids and they, you know, I wasn't, wasn't around like I should have been. And, and, and she had gotten fed up. And plus, you know, I was doing all kinds of other stuff. You know, I, I wasn't the most, uh, 
you know, faithful guy, let's put it like that. Right. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it happens like that. So, uh, we get out and, um, my wife, I, I come into the house and, I, and she's, uh, she's already tired. Cause I told her I was coming home and ended up not getting home for hours. My kids were waiting up for me. She had made dinner for me. And, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm sick of it right now. So I, I go upstairs, you know, I talk to my kids for a little while, have, eat my food, and me and her are about to get into an argument, and I get a call. Now, the, I'll tell you what what uh, what really helped me to become, re- really why this case was so touching to me. So I get a call uh, out of, that a young, lady's been, a young girl has been murdered, uh, and uh, they asked me to come out to the crime scene, which I'm going to go anyway because I'm the lead investigator that night. Um, get out to the crime scene, and I'm looking at this vehicle. This this vehicle. This is a say like a 2004, 2005 BMW. It's lodged up on the side of a wall, and the tires are still engaged because the victim, she's been shot inside of her vehicle, and she tried to drive away from her attacker, and he shot one time through the car, strikes her in the back of her head, and she dies instantly. So she's the car ended up wrecking and it's lodged on the side of a wall and we couldn't get it out of, uh, out of gear, uh, before I got out there and, you know, until we could take some precautions to not screw up the crime scene. Excuse me. Excuse me. At any rate, um, I get out to the crime scene and the whole while there, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I need to try to straighten this stuff out with my wife. Because I'm not, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do as a father. I know that I'm not being a husband. I should be. So I get out to the crime scene, and I, I'm not spending enough time with my kids, and those were the most important things of my life. Get out to the crime scene, and I'm taking down my notes, and I'm looking in the car at the victim. Now they've got everything set up to where I can get close enough to it and, and take down my notes before they remove the body from the car. And uh, I'm writing out my notes, and the guy, I asked the guy, I said, what's her name? And he says, Kayla. And I stopped for a second. You know, her name is what? Kayla. My daughter's name is Kayla. This young lady is not too much older than my daughter. So from that point, you know, I, I'm already struggling because I hadn't spent any time with my kids. You know, I'm already going through this this, this mental thing that we go through as, as homicide. You know, uh, and from that point on, everything that I saw, everything that I did, every picture that I looked at, I didn't see my victim's face. I saw my own child's face. And I thought about everything that was going, that was happening about, you know, how I wasn't spending any time with her. And I thought about my victim's family, you know, how they let that daughter go out of the house just for a few minutes, you know, a couple of hours. And, now she'll never be seen again. I didn't want to be like that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I started working this case, and and it was like investigating my own my own child's murder. Murder. You know, I I, I picked up a, a a really good relationship with my victim's mom, which I talked to her and her, her brother, and uh, I don't talk to her father as much, but I talked to you know my victim's mom and brother. He, we're friends today. Uh, and they know my kids. They, they, my, the, their, her, her family, and I—we just kind of connected, you know. Uh, and and I, I think that connection was brought about by one of the most traumatic events that any 
person could experience and that's murder. So, uh, you know, and I'm just giving you a preface of the case. I don't want to yeah. tell you everything that happened, but yeah, man, it, it was one of it. Working that case helped me to realize that every day is special. Every day you need to do something to make tomorrow better. So I started after I finished the case up and, you know, if you, if you're interested in seeing, in seeing the book or reading the book, it's on Amazon now it's been doing book sales. have been doing pretty well, but I, you know, I always can use another person buying one more book. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's a, it, I take you through all the emotions that I went through and I take you through everything that was happening with me and my wife and my kids during that time, you know, the nights that I left and slept in my office and, you know, the nights of being out on the streets uh, or or trying to, you know, be at home and s- spend time with my kids. But mentally, I'm not there. You know, I'm physically there. Mentally, I'm still at work trying to find these fuckers that kill my, my, my child. You know, so. Yeah, it's it. There's a there's a lot of of of. There's a lot of PTSD that happens with with law enforcement that a lot of people don't know about. A lot of people don't talk about. And it goes, some of it comes about by some of the things that you see here and do on a daily basis. And I think that's what happened with me during that time. Do you know how many cases you work? Yes. Yeah. So I, um, so I've investigated, I think last count where I led, I've, I've led in over a hundred cases, um, the last count of cases that I've, you know, I've investigated murder cases that I've investigated were over 300 and it may not sound like a lot, but that's a lot. Yeah. That's that. It sounds like a lot. Um, <laughs> I was going to say like, what are our try to think? What are the more complicated cases? The more complicated. So because most, most aren't most murders. Like it's kind of, random it just happened it gets out of control or to me like if someone really methodically thought out the crime like that's a difficult case right so the the ones they're all difficult in some way shape or form even some of the ones that would most people would think are easier cases the domestic violence type cases what's going on youtube rdap dan here federal prison time consulting hope you guys are all having a great day if you're seeing and hearing this right now, that means you're watching Matt Cox on Inside True Crime. At the end of Matt's video, there will be a link in the description where you can book a free consultation with yours truly, RDAP Dan, where we can discuss things that could potentially mitigate your circumstances to receive the best possible outcome at sentencing or even after you started your prison sentence. Prior to sentencing, we can focus on things like your personal narrative, your character reference letters, prepping you properly for the pre-sentence interview, which is going to determine a lot of what type of sentence you receive. If you've already been sentenced, we can also focus on the residential drug abuse program, how you can knock off one year off of your sentence. Also, we have the First Step Act where you can earn FSA credits while serving your sentence. For every 30 days that you program through the FSA, you can actually knock an additional 15 days off per month. These are huge benefits, and the only way you're going to find out more is by clicking on the link, booking your free consultation today. All right, guys, see you soon at the end of the video. Peace. I'm out of here. Back to you, Matt. So here's the thing when you think about homicide investigations. The one thing that's helped me out the most is almost three-quarters of the murders that happen in the U.S., they happen, they are caused by someone 
that has a relationship with the victim. You know, that there's some sort of relationship, some sort of connection with the victim. Most murders are not random acts of violence. The majority of them are not. So when you deal with homicides, if you go into it with that mindset, uh, you can usually maneuver through you and, and you know how to take your your investigation. It, it all starts with the with the the, the background of the victim. The vic- it's called victimology. Uh, and I don't think enough uh, schools teach enough about victimology and learning victimology because especially when it comes to homicide investigations, because like I just said, three quarters of every case that you'll work in this country are caused by are committed by someone that's connected to your victim. So uh, so, yeah, they're all complex in, in that that sense, because you have to unravel each piece. It's like a like a onion. You know, you have to peel back so many layers until you get to where what actually the root cause of what happened. And usually nine times out of 10, it's usually something, uh, someone that's connected to a victim. So yeah, they, they are all, but, they, but they're all, they all have a level of complexity that, uh, you know, only you can only understand it if you've been through it or, or conducted a homicide investigation. Do you, I mean, so do you, but do you have any one in particular that's interesting that, that was complicated that you, eventually put it together for some, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the ones that, that are, are, are usually the most complex are your serial cases. Uh, and I've only had one of those because those are not usually your serial cases are not, you know, they're not, how can I put it? They are those random acts of violence. Right. This person, this person sees someone, that they think would make would become a they, they could be an easy target, they do whatever you know, and they commit the murder. So those are those are the ones that you have to that are are extremely hard to put together because it usually takes a lot of working moving parts. Uh, and I had one like that, uh, and this one wasn't. Yeah, this one was, it, it was kind of random, but there was a connection between the victim and the suspect. So I had this young girl, uh, she was 17 years old at the time that she was murdered. Uh, so here's the scenario. Her and her mom had been on a, on, on some really bad terms. Uh, and when she gets out of school, she was responsible for going to her mom's job, sitting down with her for about two or three hours and, and uh, then riding home with her mom for work because her mom just didn't trust her in the house by herself. She was a little bit promiscuous. So uh, on this particular day, this girl had been on punishment for, uh, on this punishment that her mom had, you know, enforced on her. She was had to get off the bus and come to sit up there with her uh, at work until her mom got off and then her mom would take her home. But on this day, uh, the mom said, allows her to go on home you know, go to the house a little bit early because she was going to, mom had to work some overtime and this young lady had to do some homework. So she allowed her to go home. Uh, mom comes home about four hours later, finds her daughter. She's been murdered. Uh, uh, and her, 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 she had been strangled to death. Uh, and then the suspect cut her throat. And he cut her throat after she was murdered. Her body was positioned and posed in a way that, you know, it wouldn't have happened if, you know, it, it wasn't just random. You could tell that the body had composed. Uh, so 
the way that she was posed, it led me to believe that, you know, it was somebody that was kind of close to her. She had a boyfriend who uh, I had some witnesses who said that, you know, they had seen the guy lurking around the house earlier that day. Uh, and uh, so I, I'm, I'm thinking, OK, this is my guy. I need to go pick him up. You know, he's where I need to start. Pick the guy up, bring him in for questioning. He doesn't confess like that admit to anything. But I get the witnesses uh, in who says that, OK, they can identify him as the person that was lurking around the house that day. But nothing, uh, that was it. You know, he was very convincing in the interview room. And I didn't feel right about putting him in jail at that moment. The mom's pissed off. She was totally pissed off with me. I didn't feel right about putting him in jail. So I did. Uh, and, and I didn't have enough probable cause to charge him with anything. But, I, you know, you know, I said, let's just give me time. I'm going to work this case and, and, and I'll find out who's responsible. If it's him, then he's going to jail. If it's not him, let me find out who's responsible. I worked that case for three years. Three years. I mean, and, and doing something on it at least every, uh, uh, on a daily basis or going back out to the crime scene, you know, talking to people that knew the girl. Uh, and uh, this is during a time where DNA evidence wasn't as prevalent as it is today. Like, you can do DNA test and get it back within a couple of hours now. You know, back then it took months, it took years sometimes, I and mean, you couldn't even get it unless you had, you know, a suspect. So, at any rate, uh, during those three years, a lot of things happened, and and you know, that that's when DNA and, and the collection of it and processing of it went into overdrive. So, uh, what here in Alabama, which they've done now nationwide, they started taking samples dna samples from everyone that was in prison yeah so uh when i first started this case you know we never we didn't they didn't do that but i had dma that was connected to this victim so at any rate uh three years later i get a dna hit from this guy a completely random guy the mom nobody knew that the victim and this guy had been seeing each other or had been talking on the phone or anything uh, she had, and actually they had just met earlier that day. Uh, and she ended up brought, bringing him back to the house and, uh, he ended up was the one that was responsible for the murder. He was in prison for murdering another young woman that happened in another municipality, just, you know, a few miles away from where my, my department was. And, uh, you know, I went over and talked to him. He wouldn't talk to me, but I had the DNA evidence, you know, against him. He, he had gotten life in prison for the uh, for the other young girl's murder because he did her. Although in actuality, he, had, he, he got convicted before I even knew he was responsible for my murder. He had been convicted of two murders. So that's why it became a serial case. He had killed three young ladies over the span of about I want to say it was over about the span of a year. And uh, the only thing that connected him in my case was the DNA evidence. And he had no reason to be at the house. It was in her vagina. And uh, yeah, you know, he, he had, uh, he was responsible for that murder. Uh, and and no, those are some of the cases that, you know, it was, it was completely random. There was nothing that, that suggested this girl and this guy had a connection. 
Uh, and, and that makes it extremely hard when you're investigating homicide cases. It's just those random acts of violence. Yeah, I was going to say the the serial killers, you know, that that is the whole thing. They, they're, they're some long-distance truck driver. They swing yeah. into it, and they'll go after somebody who's vulnerable anyway, a prostitute or somebody yeah. get in the car. Nobody sees them get in the car. They find the body. Like, how the, how are you going to? How are you going to track this back to one of the 10,000 right. truck stops that, that, that drove, right. drove through through that date? 10,000 trucks that drove through. Right. That yes, that's exactly right. It's Without exactly something right. like DNA, that's why they get away with so many. Mm-hmm. I, I always love the books. Um, have you ever read James uh, Patterson where he's got uh, Detective Cross? Uh-huh. Is yeah. the, the homicide yeah. second. So yeah, I forget the name of his like nemesis, but they always make him seem so you know. Of course, he's he's a sadist, but you know they always make him seem so brilliant and so, and he thought everything through. And the the truth is, most of these guys, they're just they're you know not not that they're stupid, but they're they're so over are so driven by just, you know, instinct and they, they make huge mistakes, but they get away with it because there's, like you said, there's typically no connection between them and the victim. So even though they made all these major mistakes, the truth is, is it's just difficult to pin them down. And eventually it's got to take something like, like DNA and they're already got five convictions and they go ahead and admit to another 10 because they know they're about to be put into the electric chair or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean you know, look, it, it's, it's complex within itself, but I think the technology and investigations has helped us out a lot as as detectives, but you cannot beat a good detective that's just going to get out there and beat the pavement and, and talk to people and be able to communicate with people. Well, I was going to say, even, even with cameras being everywhere, you still have to go to the bank you still have to go to the convenience store. You still have to go and, you know, you still have to, it's still all that running around to say, well, if he went this way, he probably would have crossed this liquor store and they've got a camera. So let's go there. You still have to put all those things together. Then you have to sit there and look through 12 hours of tape or 120 hours of tape or whatever the case may be. And then, you know, everything, it's just, um, I was going to say, it's like, uh, you know, I've, I've, like I said, I've talked to a bunch of law enforcement. They're like, it's it's just like extreme boredom, boredom with these spikes of right. adrenaline. It's right. like being a soldier. It's like you're right. nothing happens for you know three months straight, and then you're in a battle for four days straight, and it's just exhausting. Right. It's, that's exactly um, right. Yeah. As you say, I was in, um, you know, I I when I was locked up, and I would do all this research on guys, and I'd order the Freedom of Information Act, like. It would be hours and hours of printing documents, paperwork, ordering docket sheets, reordering documents. And then the spike in adrenaline would be you get mail and you open up the transcript. And on page seven, you're like, oh, oh. you're running. Right. Like I would feel like I had solved the case. I'm running around going, oh, my gosh, she was driven black horse babies, you know, whatever it was. No. It always works out like that, man. You know, we we would have there would be days like we would we would be going for for two or three days. I remember I had a case on first forty eight a couple of years. Well, it was probably uh oh man, this was in two thousand and ten. I want to say it was. This was on. 
This case was on first 48, man. We had, uh, I mean, during initial phases of the investigation. So what happened was we had this victim that was uh, inside of her home. Some guys break in on her and uh, you know, put her down on the ground and ended up shooting, killing her, murdering her inside her house. And then the store and got gas and poured gas all around the house, set the house on fire, tried to burn the body up. Dumbest thing ever. Uh, and, and, uh, so during the initial phases of the investigation, you know, I thought it was just going to be a random, I mean, a, a completely, you know, kind of normal, if that's a word that you can use in homicide cases, which you normally can't use. I thought it was just going to be a, like a routine investigation. So, um, while we're out on the scene, some of the family members come to the house and, uh, they they start asking about the woman's child said her child should have been in the inside of the house and we hadn't seen a child and there's not a child inside of the house. So now the case switches from just a routine investigation to now we are looking for an abducted child. So we just, we go, we run for hours and hours and hours. And then we ended up locating the child, you know, at, at a, at a, at a friend of hers house. So, you know, and and then we go back into the routine of investigating the case. And maybe two or three hours after after that, we get a big lead of where the victim's property may have been or whatever. You know, we run and, and go start investigating that portion. So that's a, that's you're you're very right. That that's the 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 the, the, the ups and downs of a homicide investigation. You know, you sometimes you move a little bit slow. Sometimes you're running your tail off for hours and hours. Uh, sometimes you're running your tail off for days, you know, and it's, that's the way it, it works. And you got to be able to adjust your body and your mindset to doing it like that. Oh, uh, um, man, I was going to, I, you had said something and shoot. Now I can't remember. <laughs> um, good. yeah. Uh, so, oh, know what it was we used to, we used to always joke um about you know your your co-defendant getting arrested mm-hmm. and it was always like well you know you you, you know you're always going to say something no he's not going to say nothing no he'll say something no he won't and and, and i tell you you've seen 40 uh you've seen the first 48 they're all talking they're all got oh. it like you know every one of the gangsters that walks in there ends up crying his eyes out within two hours and saying you know oh you don't understand friend and so, so. That, i'm glad you brought that up because that reminds me uh that this it actually it was the same case i just told you about you know when i got the guys that were responsible for the murder uh got him into the room there was one guy i can't remember what his name was jeez i remember this joke but he ticked me out so bad uh he was just the uh, hard and he wanted to be so hard i was like look man you charged with capital murder you know Capital murder, you don't, you don't believe that yourself. I'm too pretty to go to jail. Like, oh, okay. This is what he's saying. And, and the camera crew, they they get all that. They eat that shit up. You know, so they they get all of it on camera and they post it on, on the uh on this show. And I'm like, I was ticked off about that case myself because you know, they what they didn't show was two days after he's charged now, and now he's over at the county jail and he's had his preliminary hearing. And, you know, they're not letting him go. He doesn't have a bond. He got to sit there until a trial because he's charged with capital murder. It's starting to sink in. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah in, a, in, a, in a big way. I got call after call after call from jail people saying, hey, 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 uh, Detective Anderson, he wants to talk to you. And the same guy that walked out of my office saying that I'm too pretty to go to jail, you don't believe that yourself. You know, he's all big, man, bold, sat right there and told me the entire thing of how this robbery went down. You know, and it was too late then because his partner had already snitched on everybody and told everybody, you know, what had happened. But yeah, uh, he he told everybody. He told he sat there and tried to confess to everything, and then he tried to withdraw his confession later on. But you know, that's a whole other story. But the point that I want to make is on First Forty Eight and all these other shows, they try to seem so hard, so violent. But when you get them in that room, in that box, that's what we called it, the box. When you get them in the box, 90% of them break down and will tell every single thing that happened. They will tell you things that you weren't even investigating. You know, they'll tell you about crimes that they've committed that you didn't even know that they were responsible for, you know, just to get out of that, especially when it comes to murder. If they've committed robberies, oh my God, they will tell you about 30 robberies that they've committed that they can get out of this homicide that they look at. But I mean, at, at what? So if you just killed someone, like, you can't possibly think you're gonna you're gonna talk your way out of it. I mean, they do. They, I mean, that's your that right now that face tells me well, they do. They try. I mean, you know, you think about it. So I, I the way our criminal justice system is set up in most states, I know in Alabama it is. Alabama wants the most culpable person. They want the person that, that who was the one that actually pulled the trigger, who was the mastermind behind it. So if you come in and you're the first person to say, well, he was the mastermind behind it and this is how we did it. You know, uh, sometimes they are more lenient towards you in your sentencing phase. Right. So, you know, look, a lot of people will say, don't, you know, don't, don't go in and talk to the police. Uh, okay. Yeah. You have a right to not, make any any statements uh 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 to your to to law enforcement that's your that's your constitutional right set out by the government of the united states of america but if you are involved in the case and sometimes you know you you might want to if you're not as, as culpable as the next person first off you don't want to do the crime just don't do the crime right you know right. that that's the first thing but if you're involved and you know look there's a lot of deals being slung around, especially if you're with someone that that if you are a co-defendant, because co-defendants nine times out of ten, co-defendants are gonna talk. They're gonna talk. I mean, so if you're not about that life, don't do the crime. But you know, and if you if you if you're not about that life, don't do the crime with somebody else. You know, that's probably some of the best advice I. Um, it's funny. I always, it, so listen, I'll tell you something you might find funny and anybody like watching this, these guys have heard, heard me talk about this before. So, you know, I have all, all these, I've done all these podcasts, right? So you've got a, all the scammers out there think that I'm, you know, like a, the scam guru, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna make them rich or, you know, they need to hook up with me or talk to me or something. And I, you know, I would get these emails offering me money if I just talked to them and I'm like, you know, no. No. And I actually had a guy one time who, you know, was texting me just kind of like on a, Hey, I watch your stuff. I like your stuff. I, you know, so we're going back and forth. 
So you, you, even though I've never met the guy, you know, you kind of, I don't want to say necessarily a friendship, but you know, you respond. Well, at some point, this is, we're talking about months later, six months later of talking on and off. Um, he, he flies to Tampa. He tells me, Hey, I'm actually, I've, I, my girlfriend lives in Tampa. We're going down there. Okay. Hey, I'd love to buy you some, a uh, Starbucks. Okay. I'll meet you for Starbucks. So I meet him and he tells me, he tells me, listen, I wanted to fly down and he, he'd been locked up before too in, uh, in New York. And he said, look, I, I was locked up in New York, you know, like I, I did like, I forget three or four years. I never told on nobody. I'm like, okay. And he's like, so I wanted to come down. I wanted to let you know that, you know, I'm a solid guy. And I was like, okay. Uh, and, and he said, uh, but I need some help, man. Like if I could, you know, if you could help me out, like if I could get like half a million, I forget what the amount was. He actually had like a specific amount, like 400,000 or something. He said, if you could help me get 400,000, you can help me get 800. He's like, I'll split it with you. He's all you got to do is tell me how to do it. I'll go in the bank. I'll go and sign the papers. I'll do this. I'll do that. And he's going on and on and on. I'm like, right, right, right. And I said, okay. And I said, and when you understand, I said, I'm, I'm basically already, well, I said, once you get caught, I'm already on the indictment. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, he goes, no, man, I would never say nothing. I would, I'll just take it. I'll, if I, if I, I said, no, 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 Let me explain something. I said, let's say you never bring my name up. Once they grab you, I said, and they will grab you. I said, so they're, they're going to get you. I said, you're going to tell someone, no, I would never tell somebody. I said, stop something. You're going to tell somebody, you're going to brag. It's going to get, it's going to, it's going to end up connecting to you somehow. I said, you know what they're going to do? They're going to pull your phone records. They're going to see that we've spoken on the phone. They're going to see that there's text messages. They're going to look me up. They're going to go into a grand jury. They're going to add my name to the conspiracy or to the list of conspirators. I said, because this is something I'm known for. I said, so they're not going, I said, it doesn't, they're going to read my record. They're going to read the transcripts. They're going to see that you, you've come down here. They're going to see that both our phones were at our Starbucks for 45 minutes. I said that you flew back the same day. And then three months later, there was, you stole a million dollars. I said, I'm already done. I said, and you know what I said? I can't even go to trial because I can't take the stand in my own defense. I said, because I've got a history. So I have to sit there while they read off all these things and they allege that I've done something, even though right now I'm telling you, get on the plane and fly back to New York. I said, that's just the way it is. I said, I'm already done. I said, so I don't need to give them any additional information. And I said, that's, I said, and that is even, that's if you keep your mouth shut. And the truth is, I said, once you're locked up and they say, look, you can get two years. You're looking at eight now. You'll get two. We know Cox. All you have to do is say that he helped you. Yeah, like, and for, yeah. And we, I literally got up and we left. And and he was going, no, no. I was like, stop. So you don't understand how the electronic surveillance alone connects everybody. If I was on the jury, I wouldn't think I wasn't a part of it. Right. Yeah. So, so it's it's, you know, it's tough. It's very real. It's very. It's, it's happened to all multiple cases too. I mean, the case that uh, the case that I wrote about in my book. You know, that were even though I I only uh, you know were at, well, I was able to indict the people that were responsible for her murders. There were a lot of other names that came up in connection to these guys that you know 
we found information that helped close other cases on. I mean, people don't understand. I guess, you know, some people see television and they think that, you know, when an investigator is working a case, that's the only case that they work. And that's just not true. I mean, I, I found that the guys that we that I arrested for Kayla's murder, they were responsible for 12 other carjackings because that's how she got murdered. They, they were trying to uh, carjack her vehicle. And uh, they were responsible for 12 other ca uh, carjackings, but there were other people, you know, sometimes it would be those three. Sometimes it would be two of those guys and another guy, you know, uh, or sometimes it'd be just one of the, one guy and two other people. But a lot of those folks got charged because, you know, when we work cases like this, we don't just work that one particular case. There are multiple other cases that we usually get closed with every homicide investigation. Yeah, I was going to say, that's it, it's funny. That's like committing a crime. And let's say I commit the perfect, me and three guys, we go and we commit this perfect little conspiracy. We get a couple million dollars. We're thrilled. We we, we walk away. That's great. I You walk away or I walk away. But then two years later, one of those guys commits a crime. And it's serious. And he says, you know, and the detective says, look, you can help yourself out. Like you could do five years or you could do, you could do one year, yeah. you know, you know, anything. Well, you know what? Yeah. They're going to take a deal. Right. They're going to be in prison for a long period of time. So the best thing to do is don't do the crime. Don't do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's insanity now. Nowadays, there's the, the technology, DNA, cameras, everything. It's yeah. it's rough. You know, I, I and, you know, I, I need to make sure I, I say this. I, you know, I love the way the technology has helped out investigations. It's not a, but it's not a end all be all. Especially DNA. You know, with the way that they are collecting it now, it's actually become kind of dangerous, in my opinion. Uh, in in certain aspects, that is, you know, because. Like, uh, there's no way you can go in any place and not leave something of you in that place. I'm talking about like the restaurants, you know, you know your friend's house. Yeah, uh, 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 there, there are certain uh, uh, investigative theories. And they're not theory, they're actually facts that, that say that, you know, each time you enter in a room, uh, you take something away and you leave something there. So uh, uh, with that premise and the way that DNA is being collected, you know, it can become dangerous. Uh, and and uh, we've seen that in, in some of the cases that I've investigated, especially some of the cases we looked into on reasonable doubt. I was going to say, uh, what, what was the term transference where you yeah, transference? Yeah. That, 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 that theory is, is the, it's called the Lacar principle, but uh, yeah, it, it that, that's what he speaks of is, 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 um, especially like, uh, your skin cells from your hand and things of that nature that can be pulled. You know, you need a, a, a minimal amount of skin cells can be pulled and, and you can get your, a DNA profile from it. And, and that becomes kind of dangerous because if, you know, if you find someone's, uh, DNA inside of a certain area where it shouldn't have been or inside of a crime scene and it comes back to a certain person. That doesn't mean that that person is responsible for that murder. That means that you need to look at that person and either eliminate them or find enough evidence that convicts them. And uh, it, 
we've had cases where some of that evidence has wrongfully convicted them. I was I was going to say there was the uh, this was recently I want to say like a, maybe a week or so ago uh, a buddy of mine uh, mentioned it to me that some guy had committed a murder and his one of his family members had gone on ancestry DNA and uploaded yeah. their, their DNA and they were like, look, a relative of this guy's yeah. committed that murder. And so they, sure enough, they, the detectives d- connected it all and said, okay, boom, that's our guy. That's the next door neighbor. And a week after the killing, he moved across the country, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, there, there have been a couple of cases I've researched. Uh, one of them was, ah, man, Upson. it was, I think it was a murder that, that uh, or a serial killer. And uh, I think it was like California or something like that, uh, that they were able to connect his uh, his DNA or a, 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 a close relative of his. They were able to connect his DNA to those murders. You know, I never got lucky enough to do nothing like that. Because Jesus Christ, that that would. That would have been easy, but, you know, yeah, it's. Uh, oh, I'll, yeah. Yeah. But I'll, I'll bet that was still. That was still a lot of phone calls, a lot of filling, oh, yeah. a lot of ways, yeah. a lot of, you know, somebody. Absolutely. Had to, Absolutely. And somebody has to put that together. Somebody has to be, a couple of guys got to be sitting in a room with their, banging their head against the wall. And somebody says, you know what? Yeah. This is a long shot. Yeah. But what if we did this? So I'll bet, you know, first they run the DNA through it and then they go, ah, well, let's see if we can get a relative. Maybe he didn't do it. He's not going to upload his DNA. Yeah. Maybe a relative. Okay, run it again. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Uh, yeah, the technology and investigations has, has completely gone just way in, in in a direction that me when I was working cases, I never would have imagined it doing something like that. But I wish I had it because there there are a lot of cases that I why well, I just, well I, I left quite a few cases that were uh, uh, that I would love to see solved, finished, uh, you know. A lot, uh, quite a few. So, what are, what are you doing now? So, right now, I I serve as the uh, chief of police at Talladega College. It's my alma mater, uh, and uh, you know, of course, all campus police departments have their own particular police departments. Uh, and I was, you know, I was blessed enough to get the opportunity to go back and work at my 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 institution uh, after I retired from you know law enforcement and uh and uh there was a change in the in, in the uh leadership so they asked me to come on and see if i could uh help out the, with the security measures there and I, I love policing at a college it's much different than you know what i'm used to so uh you know now it's more mentorship than enforcement you know uh so uh yeah and, and I, I'm, I'm an instructor there. i also teach uh criminal investigations there at the college Okay, perfect. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's been a great, it's been a great ride since retiring. Um, okay. So, any, no, in any, any, so there was the, you were on the first 48, mm-hmm. and, um, then you did Reasonable Doubt. Was that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My memory's horrible. So, uh, reasonable doubt. So, I mean, are there are are there any other projects along those lines, like are, that you're looking at or or pitching or thinking about? 
So uh, I don't think that we're done with Reasonable Doubt. I, I think that that show was so beyond its time. Uh, there have been certain television shows that have tried to do something like a Reasonable Doubt, but I just think that the way that we did it was uh, it, it was great. It wasn't just television. It's really <laughs> we were trying to right some of the wrongs that happened within our criminal justice system. Uh, it was just way, it was way more than just television for me. So uh, I would love to see uh, if we could to try to get, you know, another show kind of like Reasonable Doubt back all. Uh, but, you know, other than that, that, you know, that's that's all I'm, I'm doing. I, I, I make appearances. I've made several appearances on uh, all kinds of, news, all, all the news media stations, uh, as an expert in, in criminal investigations and homicide investigations. Uh, and uh, I've made several appearances on different crime shows, uh, uh, you know, to talk that as an expert also. But as far as a, a television show that, you know, I have a few things that are in the works, nothing, nothing major, but I would love to get back on television. Okay. Any, any new books you're working on? Yeah, I'm actually, I actually am, uh, uh, this fall, I am working on a book called, man, you are crazy. I am, uh, co-author in that book with a guy that I think you're familiar with, Evan Dawson, Katie. Uh, yeah, that's my book. That's my dude, man. Katie and I, um, we actually met on the, uh, media circuit doing podcasts and, uh, and, uh, our publicists put us together, man, to talk about some of, uh, some of the PTSD that's involved in law enforcement, which is never, it's never uh, uh, really looked into. And actually, it's actually shunned upon them to even mention that you may have received some PTSD from working in law enforcement. But our goal is to destigmatize that, destigmatize that 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 mindset, because I believe that you respond to PTSD. People respond to PTSD in different ways, and uh. You know, if you don't get help for it, don't understand how to navigate through it, uh, you usually respond in a negative way. So uh, that's our goal uh, to, to to write the book, help to destigmatize uh, and, and, and talk about, you know, how can we go about destigmatizing the mindset that PTSD does exist in law enforcement and we need to do more in order to 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 solve the problem. I, I did. I interviewed both of them. OK. Uh, we all went to dinner. Uh, he met my wife. Uh, yeah. who else was there? Uh, gosh, John A. Light was there. So was, um, Mike Dowd. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Mike Dowd. Yeah. yeah. So he was there. Um, and, uh, there was a bunch of people there. So we all had dinner and then I, I, we did the podcast, I think the next day and, uh, listen, what a horrible podcast. Like, I mean, they're in tears. I'm in tears. Like I borderline, I borderline cried most of the day anyway, just in general, you yeah. know, and, and these two guys, you know, they're, they're tearing up and I'm tearing up. It was, just, it was after an hour, it was like, I, I, I typically in the middle of the day, like don't want to take a Like I'm not the kind of guy that's like, Oh, I'm going to go take a nap. Like, I mean, I wanted to go crawl in bed and just sleep for like two yeah. hours. It's emotionally draining. Yeah. 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 Katie is my guy, man. He, he's a good, he's a really good guy, real police. I flew up to uh, his city a couple months ago to do his podcast, man. And it was, uh, 
it was a great experience. I love I love doing this studio stuff. I just, you know, unfortunately, I just, you know, it takes a lot of time schedule to, to, to fly up and do things and, and yeah he, he a couple months ago he asked me hey when are you going to be in 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 new york i think it's in new york right or new jersey new york jersey well yeah so he asked me well wait, are you going to be up here anytime soon i was like no man yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no i was like, right, like you know, well, yeah anyway i just go to, i just go to jersey all the time no. yeah like how, how does that um it's funny because I actually have another podcast I need to do. I I, I got to see. The problem is, it, I don't know. There's actually like three podcasts in that general area. The problem with that general area, in my mind, you know, New York City and the, that general area is not that big. But the the truth, it but it is big. It, there's like three, you know, like from one podcast, like New Jersey to you know. There's like this, uh, this guy. So I, I tracked it. I went on Google maps. It's okay. This guy's address is this, this, well, that's four hours. Like if this guy's an hour and 45 minutes, like I, 